Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. And I'm happy to welcome to the show Michael Cohen, the Eastern Director, the Simon Weasel Center. Michael, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you so much, Michael. And, uh, you know, first and foremost, just uh, miles up on your recent uh, uh, child's wedding. Uh, really great, great, uh, great things and only great things for you. Thank you very much, Michael. I really appreciate it. All the good wishes. So crazy times going on here around the world for Jews. Uh, your organization is constantly monitoring what's going on and what the threats are to, to the Jewish community and to the Jewish people. But, you know, we've seen kind of unprecedented level of violence against regular Jews just for wearing yarmulkes in the streets of New York and elsewhere, L.A., uh, I guess the home, the home, uh, the hometown of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. So, give us an idea about what's going on and what we're facing. Precedented, and I guess the money question is: Should Jews be afraid to walk in the streets as identifiable Jews these days? Well, one of the things that we saw in in, uh, in 2019, we saw a dramatic rise in anti-Semitic attacks uh, throughout the five boroughs and throughout. Um, the suburbs, whether it's uh, Long Island, New Jersey, et cetera. Um, you know, we remember, you know, in, in 19, besides the shooting in Jersey City, the uh, the, the synagogue in uh, on Hanukkah in Muncie that, that was attacked by knife point, um, the shooting in, 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 in Pittsburgh, the, the other kind of events. And if you looked at the NYPD hate crime stats, you saw the specific spike. I believe it was a 26% spike from... Uh, 2018 to 19 in anti-Semitic hate crimes that uh, that they had uh, recorded. Uh, and keep in mind, those are only the ones that they recorded, not not all that exist, obviously, from unreporting. Uh, but and that was heading into the pandemic. So once you went to the pandemic, you know numbers dropped and and uh, priorities changed among among uh, you know law enforcement and other things because we had to. And one of the things we started seeing then was a very significant rise on social media of hate groups, of lone wolves, really trying to attack the Jewish community, whether it was um, blaming us for everything you can imagine from the pandemic to, um, to hoarding supplies, to, uh, to opening schools that shouldn't be open, which were not open, to all kinds of things. So it never really went away from that. But the difference that we're seeing now, which we did not see as much really in 2019 and prior, was the physical attacks. We saw back then swastikas, and when you saw things of the incidents of Jersey City and whatnot, those were the large-scale attacks. They weren't the one-on-one -on -one attacks of every of a random Jew walking in the street and getting attacked. Those were targeted facilities that were uh, of a very different kind of, of, of methodology. Now you're seeing, like we saw with Joseph Borgen, um, like we saw with other situations recently, um, that you're really seeing just random um, you know, people seeing a Jew and, and, and attacking in a way that we haven't seen in, in recent memory. And it's really scary. It's especially scary because it's hard to prevent something like that, right? I mean, you just don't know where it's coming from. And, you know, the random – but, you know, this was not just random of individuals. This is group violence that we saw here. Um, that's – I mean, that's particularly, you know, scary. And I guess in this environment of kind of erring uh, towards uh, criminal justice reform, quote-unquote, that we'll call it, uh, where everybody's afraid, meaning the authorities are afraid after protesters, they're afraid to go after people committing vandalism. Have we entered a new era where this kind of 
violence is condoned. I don't want to say it's condoned, but you, but you understand what I'm getting at is that it's tolerated. So, you know, you're saying one of the issues we had was back in, you know, before the pandemic, most of what you saw was, was institutions being attacked. So as a community, what did we do? We had, uh, whether it was CSS or CSI or, or all these you know, organizations that helped us provide security so we could feel safer in those institutions. We didn't worry about wearing a yarmulke in the middle of Midtown. That just, that just wasn't what we feared at that point. Um, so is this a new development in that regard? I think it is. And, and you know, I, I think if you look at, you know, you know, I keep on going back, but you look at social media and how you're seeing instigators and people trying to inspire hate against our community there, um, there are real concerns. And obviously, when those concerns change and evolve in the way that they have, uh, our community is going to very obviously be concerned with how those things are dealt with in a, in a criminal justice capacity, how we're dealing with it in a legislative capacity, and what additional protections do we need to have um, that those protections need to evolve as the situation evolves as well. So you organized a very successful rally this past Thursday in Cedarhurst Park in the Five Towns. I think it was the largest crowd ever in the Five Towns, a bipartisan rally. Talk, talk for a second to the audience about what you see uh, as far as the Jewish community's reaction to this. I think, I think people were just shocked by what was going on and felt that they had to say something and, and stand up. But what else can people be doing in addition to showing up for a rally? Sure. I, I, you know, the rally, according to official estimates, had over 4,000 people. And you're correct. It was, uh, according to the official statistics, it was the largest gathering ever, ever in Cedarhurst Park. So right away, when you see the elected officials there uh, and people say, well, you know, how many elected officials do you want to hear speak? I think the key is, is how many elected officials do you want to have there who hear us speak and see our crowds? And that's why it's important for them to be there. Uh, but that rally, you know, keep in mind, that was put together literally in four days. And it was done because I think you, you saw that um, and the community saw not only the attacks all over the place, but they're also seeing that when Joseph Borgen was attacked, this was one of their own. This was, a, a, you know, a, a, an individual who grew up in the five towns, who grew up in the locals, in the local schools and schools, uh, who was very much um, somebody that people knew. And that really made people want to do something beyond um, j just wondering. People wanted to figure out what they can do now. And there was a feeling that something had to be done. So, you know, we put together that rally. Uh, we saw, it, 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 I think it was 30 or 40 different organizations co-host with us. Um, and if you look at who those organizations were, they were not necessarily organizations that typically work together. And it really speaks to people wanting to unite, people wanting to come together, and people recognize that whatever part of the Jewish community you come from, you need to be a part of the solution. Because when people are attacking Jews, they're not asking about you know, what level of the religious spectrum you're on or what's your political affiliation. That's not of interest. What's of interest is that you're Jewish and, that's, and, and you have anti-Semites who want to attack us. Um, so we need to be aware of that and come together. And the fact that we did that in that kind of way, in that kind of speed, in those kind of numbers is extraordinary. But we need to make sure to understand that this has to be a first step, not an only step. You know, we announced that night a petition, uh, which you can go on to in, under, uh, under uh, change.com, change.org, um, rather, which has gotten over 6,000 signatures, really just showing numbers again in showing our elected officials and the powers that be that we are not going to stand silent. Our voices are going to be heard, and we will not tolerate physical attacks against our community in any way, shape, or form. 
a lot of people have expressed concern with regard to things like bail reform and criminals coming, uh, especially those committing hate crimes, be being released same day and you know along those lines. I mean, what is going? How do we push in New York State for stronger? protections for the community about people who just literally i think the the gentleman who gentleman the 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 jerk who beat up borgen uh he, i th- you know he claimed that he would do it again um yeah how do you let a guy like that back on the street so i also think you know our, our community needs to really engage in better um education politically legislatively and actually know what's happening I think we've we have felt too secure and, and too safe for too long uh, to really understand the nuances of what's going on politically and, 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 and legislatively when they're happening. And we need to be much more engaged in tune with this kind with these kind of things as they're happening. You know, the, the kind of kind of legislation you're talking about happened two years ago. And there were major fights about it then. Um, and you have to ask, well, where were we all two years ago on this? Because we can't just show that we're gonna be involved when something happens, because just like it's affecting the Jewish community now, you know, it's been affecting throughout the pandemic the Asian community, it's been affecting the Af- African American community, it's been affecting other communities as well. And we need to stand up with other communities if we're going to expect communities to stand with us. And when you look at things like you're talking about, uh, bail reform and the criminal justice reform and things of that nature, um, you, you know, people were, a lot of people were calling me saying, well, how come he's out? He's out because of bail reform. The reality is, is last year there was an updated piece of legislation in Albany which actually um, uh, had a, a, a carve out for hate crimes. And what it did was is anybody in, 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 in broad strokes, anybody who caused a physical violent attack against another physical person in the felony level would not be uh, exempt um, of bail. So for instance, when this individual attacked Joseph Borgen ended up um, being arraigned, he did have bail. We can argue that the amount of bail that the judge gave him was insufficient. It was $10,000. And that was one of the, the arguments that night that Joseph Borgen made that why is it so low? But that's not a product of bail reform. He was a product. He, he, was, he did have bail. The question, the question there is, is like you said, what do we do, though, from a larger criminal justice perspective, if we know that the individual, upon being, being let loose on bail or whichever way, whichever way they're let loose, specifically states that I will do that again. Well, th- then how do you monitor that? And obviously there are free speech issues. There are all kinds of other issues involved. Um, but if that individual um, goes and attacks somebody else in our community, you can imagine the response. I mean, one thing Joseph Borgen was saying that night was saying, well, if he's back on the street saying specifically, he's going to do it again. And now I'm all over the networks and, and people see who I am and people know where I live. What's stopping him from coming into my community and attacking me again over here? So, but like I said, our community needs to understand better uh, when we're saying bail reform, we're using these kinds of terminologies when they're truly applicable. And if that's really what's affecting here, because in the Borgen case, bail reform had really nothing to do with this. Um, Right. Right. I I think it's just a larger concern that people have around all these issues and people are scared. People are scared. This is kind of, as you said, they're very comfortable. People feel comfortable, which is a credit to the United States of America. It's a credit to the state of New York and our local officials. They make us feel comfortable. But now we have a shock like this and we have people literally hunting Jews in the street. It's extremely scary. So Michael Cohen, Eastern Director of San Luis Center, thanks for joining us. Uh, hopefully we won't have to have you back uh, to talk about this type of issue. 
But we really appreciate you coming on to uh, join us and discuss this. Well, well, Michael, thank you so much for having me. And just, you know, and for yourself and your listeners to know, uh, the Simon Wiesenthal Center is going to stay on the front lines. We are going to do everything we can to protect our communities, whether it's in Albany, Washington, or on the streets of wherever we are. And um, we're not going to stop until we make sure that uh, anti-Semitism is, is, is combated in the way that it needs to be combated and that we can support Israel in the way that we need to support Israel and make sure that the issues which matter to us and matter to our communities are respected and that we can have the voice we want without having to feel scared of walking our streets. So thank you so much. You got it. Thank you. And this is Spin Class here on the Not Single Network, and we're happy to please to welcome back Benjamin Rose, editor of Large Mishpacha Magazine, it covers uh, news and politics around. And uh, look, there may, there may possibly be change in Israel. There seems to be a new government, at least that's been reported, that's been announced, that's been uh, presented to the president. Uh, who actually there is a new president in Israel as well. Uh, but uh, it seems that Kelly Bennett and Yair Lapid uh, have uh, formed a coalition to take out uh, Prime Minister or for now, or soon to be former Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. So he explained it all and what the dynamics are, what it means for Israel, and what it means for the American Jewish community, Benjamin Rose. Welcome back to Spin Class. Thank you, Michael. Always a pleasure. Okay, so uh, this is an interesting coalition. Uh, you got right, left, I mean, all, all unified by their antipathy to, uh, to Bibi Netanyahu. So explain what's going on, explain uh, what's, what the ramifications are, which seem to be huge. Well, this is certainly the most diverse coalition we've ever seen, and I'm not sure that it's going to turn out to be an advantage. You have any range of politicians and political parties from the far left, to the center right, and have an Arab coalition partner for the first time. So, uh, Tully Bennett is going to manage this and hold this all. I don't know. So, explain to those who are kind of uninitiated uh, in the in the inside baseball of Israeli politics. I mean, we always think, okay, there's right, there's left, there's the religious, there's this. Um, how is it possible that you could take uh, parties like Yamina, which is in theory to the right of the good, and, you know, SARS, which is you know, also the, a right-wing party, and have them sit together with Meretz, to say nothing of them sit together with Ra'am, an Arab party? Let's see if they really can sit together without reaching each other. Where that remains to be seen. Again, the, the thing that united them all is to try to uh, Yahoo and the much closer for the announcement that last night that they should be putting together a coalition. What's interesting is the, the last vote that 75 of the Knesset seats were taken by parties of reason. Uh, for example, Victor Lieberman is anti-Netanyahu, but he's right-wing. You don't saw, as you pointed out, are anti-Netanyahu, but the wing. And even Yari Lapid right wing when it comes to foreign policy. So uh, the majority of the coalition and the most important cabinet offices are going to be held in the center right in this government. Uh, most of the positions that are going to be held by the left and the far left are ministries like the environmental ministry, different economic 
centuries, and uh, they're not going to have as much influence, at least on paper, the foreign policy. The question is, when you're going to take a vote on legislation, if you need 61 seats, if all 61 will stand on everything, and then it's a major challenge, uh, certainly in the first few months, gets off the ground. So, it seems quite a bit of political magic that Naftali Bennett finishes the election with seven seats and is becoming prime minister. Likud finishes the election with 30 seats and they are out of power. Um, so, I guess if you're a Likud MK, if you're a Likud backbencher, are you not really unhappy with your are you why is it that they chose to keep bb at the top of the ticket and not substitute it was very clear that there were people uh with with a lot with you know 20 30 20 plus mandates who were uh who were fellow travelers with the right who should have been with the right but they wouldn't because of netanyahu why did anybody step up to go ahead and uh, take leadership away and say we need to we need to have a right wing government, but we obviously can't do it with uh, BBF help? The best for that is just because of the fact that it was and he's been minister for twelve consecutive years for a total of fifteen years, leader of the Likud for most years in the and. He was just too big of a star to depose. If Netanyahu was smart, the smartest thing he could have done would have been to say, listen, I step at this point. I see that it's not going with me at the helm. And I think step aside and let somebody else from the Likud take uh, uh, here so that we can possibly have the Likud put together the next government. But Netanyahu himself is also too stubborn and too strong to do that. And uh, even this morning, Michael, we're seeing that Joe is making efforts. It might be too late, but he's still making efforts to try to break up uh, Yamina and try to break up uh, And uh, all you need to do at this point is to shear two votes from uh, the 61-member coalition they put together and won't be able to have the vote of investiture, uh, the majority for that of 61. So that's uh, Netanyahu's new So the answer uh, to your question, that Netanyahu is not somebody and uh, Likud was not ready to push him out. Whether they should have and whether Benjamin should have stepped aside, so uh, better the next day. And this is Spin Class Benjamin Rose, editor-at-large of Ishbaka Magazine. Uh, you alluded to or uh, that this is not a done deal, and I think that's important for people to understand. There's a, a time now between things being signed on paper to an actual vote that takes place in the Knesset. So explain what goes on now. What's the process for bringing in this new government? So that basically is for the entire plenum of the Knesset, meaning all Knesset members, to meet regular session. And that next regular session is scheduled at that point uh, the who is Yariv Levine of the Likud he's the one who has to uh, set the rule for what the actual vote of investiture will be so because of the fact that you wait three four days until the Knesset can meet uh, Levine who's uh, the Likud is in charge he's the one who's going to uh, handle that and a new Knesset speaker 
So he's in charge, and he has the opportunity to try to delay as long as possible. So there's some thought that the investiture won't place for uh, 11 days, uh, which is, I believe, June 15th. And if that actually that way, then it gives more time to, to uh, break up uh, this coalition. Uh, for uh, the government is going to try to uh, get the investiture as quickly as possible, maybe even next Wednesday. We still don't know exactly what the timing will be. That's why uh, things are up in the air. Let's talk about the uh, Haredi parties for a second uh, and kind of being left out and what that means for, I guess, two questions. Number one is why didn't they try and negotiate with, with this government, with this new potential government and, and come in? Uh, did they believe that it would never happen be able to gather a coalition together? And I guess number two is... What are the ramifications? We saw the last time that they were out of the government, the last time there was a, a, a Yeshatid uh, coalition, the Haredi parties in the Haredi uh, community fared very poorly. The Haredi parties are very pragmatic, and uh, they certainly uh, knew that this kind of government could be formed, and uh, why they didn't negotiate uh, for two reasons. Uh, Arya Dari is very and uh, he was going to be at the very end. So there's no chance that Shots would uh, break away and start to go with Bennett and Lapid. As far as uh, UTJ is concerned, uh, they uh, obviously, uh, like uh, Shots does, but they follow the uh, of the rabbinical leaders. And the rabbinical leaders have said all the way, uh, going back to Rav Shach, that basically uh, UTJ's place uh, belong uh, with the Likud. Because the Likud is the party that's uh, most connected uh, to tradition. So, so weren't going to uh, uh, knock off and start negotiating with somebody else. In the past, Haredi Kays, who I've spoken to, Yitzhak Pindris, among others, have uh, tried to put a face and they say, we're not afraid of being in the opposition. We've been there before. Uh, this week, uh, they've been crying Gavald and uh, saying that this is an absolutely government and going to harm uh, uh, the interests of the Haredi community for a couple of main reasons. Number one, Mr. Lieberman, who is going to be the uh, Treasury Minister, and also the uh, Haredi will lose control of the Knesset Finance Committee, which they've had under Moshe Gaffney for many years. So uh, without uh, the ability to influence funding, uh, there could definitely be cuts to the sector in order to give money to other areas and would prefer, such as senior citizens and uh, the Russian community. Uh, privately, however, there are MKs from the Haredi part saying that totally Bennett is not anti-Haredi at all. In fact, Bennett many times over has said, Haredi are our brothers, and that we're going to treat them fairly. And uh, they also have uh, good connections with the Yelichikade, so uh, she's going to be the interior minister, and, and that's important because interior ministry handles the population, and that's when you're going to get into the who issue. And even if uh, the left wing uh, is to make uh, better connections with the reform conservative in diaspora, uh, from a practical view, Ayala Shakay would make any policy change in terms of uh, uh, loosening. Uh, uh, immigration, 
uh, or uh, any reform on the who's a Jew issue that would be to the detriment of uh, the religious community. So the uh, uh, community is saying we can work with them, and I think they're also hopeful that this government won't last long. Well, that's uh, I'll, you anticipated my next question is. I know there's all kinds of predictions that this government will not last more than a year because of its uh, ideological diversity, uh, I guess, probably unprecedented in, 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 Israeli, uh, uh, in Israeli history. I mean, this is not the, the you know, national unity government that you've had past where Likud and Labor got together. This is a very, very diverse uh, fellow. Uh, I guess so. How long is this government, and uh, and how is uh, is Bibi going to stay in the opposition, or will he, you know, find a way to bow out? That's concern. Long may not. It's really impossible to uh, predict at this point. Uh, until the government gets seated, until we see how they start functioning, or just shall we say, then uh, there's just no saying how uh, uh, that sort of longevity is going to have. I, I would imagine have at least months to a year uh, to struggle to try to form some sort of uh, cohesive policy. I don't think something that's going to fall apart right away. As far as the Likud is concerned, so there is talk of uh, primaries in the Likud, it could be that Netanyahu would like to have what they call a snap primary, meaning they would have one within uh, when he still got the same strength, or still got enough strength that he can possibly hang on. I think that's going to be rather difficult at this point because there's a lot of other people now who are looking for one position uh, near Barkat, Israel Katz. And uh, if a new government is sworn in and the Likud is going to be in position, uh, Netanyahu is not in a strong position anymore. And it could very well be that the uh, Central Committee and their voters will decide, you know, something. Antonio has been great, but it's really time for a change because we can't afford to go to another election. It may be if it's six months to a year or two years from now uh, with the same lineup that we have today. If you uh, real gun to my head, I would say that uh, when it holds primaries, they're going to choose a new uh, party chairman. Okay, and my last question for you, Benjamin Rose, editor at large, Mishpacha Magazine, is where, uh, why, I guess, did yeah, your Lapid, who clearly wants to be prime minister, has wanted to be prime minister, why did he step away and allow Naftali Bennett with his with his only seven seats, and might even be six, I guess, because one of his uh, MKs is said to not be joining this coalition. It could end up being five, even. There, there's a, there's another five. one who's, who's teetering on the brink at this point. So why did he allow, why did Yair Lapid say, hey, you go first, hey, after you? I mean, that's very polite, really nice, but not usually done in politics. Right, politeness has nothing to do with it. Uh, Lapid needed Bennett in this coalition. Without Bennett, uh, there was no way that he was going to make the announcement. He made that uh, lobby ideas here that uh, I've been able to put this together. So he had no choice. This, very strange configuration that uh, Naftali Bennett found himself in that he was not only a maker, but he was able to play that into being a king. So uh, without the Bennett seats, uh, Lapid had no chance to make a coalition. Uh, Lapid was 
hard enough to say, okay, I'm minister and uh, then I'll become prosecutor and I'll let the only person possibly put this together uh, and be uh, the prime minister first. And it was just an issue of pragmatism. Okay, actually, I'm going to throw one more bonus question in there, Benjamin, in, uh, in 60 seconds or less. What are the chances now that there will be a Mayron Commission of Inquiry? I know that that has been a big topic in the Haredi community uh, as to whether there will actually be a formal commission around the Mayron tragedy. If the Sioux government warns it, it's going to be a national commission, no doubt about it. Uh, the Haredi, uh, even if they did want to uh, it or modify it, in some way, or at least to uh, uh, make it so that uh, uh, you know, commission's powers were uh, were somewhat better or limited. It's not going to happen with the government. So, uh, if the new government gets sworn in, uh, we're going to see a commission, and uh, there's going to be a thorough investigation. Okay, Benjamin Rose, editor at Large Mishpacha Magazine, uh, coming to us from the Holy Land, updating us on the progress or potential progress for a new government in Israel, uh, which will not have uh, Bibi Netanyahu at the helm. Thanks for joining us once again here on Spin Class and enlightening our listenership. Thank you, Michael. Okay, that's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Novel Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.